The first Soviet atomic bomb test in northeastern Kazakhstan was in 1949. There followed a nearly further 500 nuclear tests over the next 40 years. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lured for the last time, and an era comes to an end. We are standing by for an Oval Office address by President Bush, as he contributes to a day even historians may have trouble describing. The United States applauds and supports the historic choice for freedom by the new states of the Commonwealth. We congratulate them on the peaceful and democratic path they have chosen and for their careful attention to nuclear control and safety during this transition. Of course, the, the number one question is the nuclear situation. 27,000, perhaps as many as 30,000 nuclear weapons. They're now concentrated in the four so-called nuclear republics. And supposedly over the next few months and perhaps years, all of them will simply be in Russia. The three other nuclear republics, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus, have pledged to be non-nuclear. If some of those uh, nuclear republics, one of those three, decides to try to back away from that commitment, there's some fear that perhaps Kazakhstan might, that would be a source of serious concern in Washington. The Soviet Union collapsed, and Kazakhstan found itself with more than a thousand Soviet nuclear weapons. Kazakhstan chose to get rid of those nuclear weapons to a large extent because of its experience with the nuclear tests. On this show, we have focused a lot on the United States experience with the bomb. The strange questions, the open-ended theories, and often painful humanitarian consequences we deal with here at home. But what of other experiences in other countries? What about stories from a place that was once called the most nuked place on Earth? What about countries that have rejected the nuclear weapons regime? This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, a researcher at the Center and your host. Today we were lucky enough to talk to Tojan Casanova, one of our board members and an expert on the Soviet nuclear program and legacy that was developed in Kazakhstan, and which may be playing a major role in how nuclear tensions are playing out between the Russian Federation and the United States in places like Ukraine today. Tojan is the author of Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb which tells the untold true story of how Kazakhstan said no to the most powerful weapons in human history. Hello, everyone. My name is Tagjan Kasenova. I'm a native of Kazakhstan and a proud Washingtonian. I work on nuclear issues and financial crime prevention. And I recently published a book called Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Tokjan, for joining us today. We're really, really excited about it. I think that many Americans are sort of waking back up to the concept of nuclear weapons right now. And I know for many young Americans, what's happening in Ukraine is the first time that they've really had to interact or even experience this issue. I know that many have had their eyes open recently regarding the legacy of Soviet nuclear weapons in post-Soviet republics like Ukraine. I know that there's been a lot of that in the media. But I doubt that many know that Kazakhstan also had a similar legacy. Uh, I'm curious, could you explain sort of Kazakhstan's relationship with the bomb? Thank you for this great question and for a chance to tell a little bit about my country. 
Kazakhstan was one of 15 republics, a part of the Soviet Union, and not out of its will, but because it was controlled by Moscow, the republic was used for the Soviet nuclear program, and that included nuclear testing, but also the Soviet military established several nuclear sites in Kazakhstan, facilities that produce nuclear material, for example. Uh, the Soviet military also placed some of its nuclear arsenal, warheads, heavy bombers, intercontinental ballistic missiles in, in Kazakhstan. So the, for the duration of the Soviet period, Kazakhstan was involved very much in the Soviet weapons program. The nuclear testing component left a, a devastating legacy in Kazakhstan because for 40 years, the military tested nuclear weapons, both in the atmosphere and later underground. In the late 1980s, people of Kazakhstan were able to shut down the nuclear test inside, and it was a, a big event with uh, global impact. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, Kazakhstan and the other two republics, Belarus and Ukraine, were left with parts of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. And it's a very interesting story how each newly independent country went through its decision-making process on what to do with the nuclear inheritance. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is something that I find really sort of fascinating. Like you say, I think that, you know, many people tend to condense their understanding of the Soviet Union into Russia, right? But like you said, in actuality, it was a makeup of Soviet republics um, with their own cultures and ethnicities and languages. And so when the Soviet Union broke up, Kazakhstan, Ukraine and Belarus were left with different decisions to make about this legacy of nuclear weapons that had left behind. You, you mentioned that most of the Soviet testing took place in Kazakhstan, for instance, but also were left with the physical remains of those legacies, right? The actual weapons themselves all of a sudden were in new countries, new, new republics, as it were. I'm curious, could you tell us more about what went into Kazakhstan's decision to ultimately return, tough to say return, but to give these weapons to the Russian Federation, right? To give them back. I will, but first let me address something that you mentioned at the top of your question. And, and thank you for bringing this up because as an ethnic Kazakh, it really bothers me very much that I think in popular perception, the Soviet Union equals Russia, uh, which is not true. <laughs> as somebody who's been living abroad uh, since the age of 19, whenever people hear my Russian accent or learn that my native tongue is Russian, I think it's it's hard for them to reconcile the fact that I look Asian and that I speak Russian. And it just shows that for, for the majority of people outside of the former Soviet Union studies, uh, it, it really comes as a surprise that half of the Soviet Union wasn't Slavic, that there were many ethnicities, more than a hundred different ethnicities, and that each republic did have its own history, its own culture, its own traditions. And I'm sad to say, during the Soviet period, there was really a policy of suppression of those cultural differences or native languages. I'm, for example, definitely a product of that. I was born in Kazakhstan, but I never spoke Kazakh. It's something that I'm only learning now, because in all the major cities, there were hardly any schools 
that taught in the language of, of the people who historically lived on that land. And, you know, even how the Soviet Union presented itself to the outside world, if you look at the promotional material of Aeroflot back at the time, you would only see blondes, Slavic-looking people, pilots and flight attendants. So while the Soviet government promoted this idea of ethnic harmony and friendship of all ethnicities, there was definitely an hierarchy and there was this feeling of, of the fact that somehow Russian culture was above everyone else's culture and everybody else was secondary or inferior. And I'm bringing this up, especially in the current context. I think we see it playing out so in such a awful way, I would say, um, you know, with what's happening in Ukraine and the rhetoric that we're observing. And so for, for someone who who is coming from the former Soviet Union, who's lived through that. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised at all by what's happening right now. So that's just to give you some context of the broader trends that were present in the Soviet Union. And, and I mentioned that because I think what happened with the, with the nuclear program and with the uh, Soviet nuclear inheritance also has some explanations in terms of how each republic handled uh, what they were left with. As I've mentioned, during the Soviet times, the Soviet military really didn't give any thought to the local people or the environment, and they put this huge uh, nuclear test inside in Kazakhstan. In the area where people actually lived, there were rural settlements, a major city of Semipalatinsk was only 75 miles away. And they tested for 40 years with complete disregard for uh, for the locals. So that that also kind of connects to to this idea that Soviet life didn't matter, but some lives mattered even less. And so the Kazakh anti-nuclear movement, this very grassroots movement to shut down the nuclear testing site, to protest against Soviet nuclear tests in Kazakhstan. I think it was the first step towards reclaiming agency and having more say uh, about your own fate. And, and I think it, it was an important part of Kazakhstan's nuclear history and nuclear story. And, and then now we move to the collapse. And, and so you have this, this society, the public that is very anti-nuclear. And at the same time, there is this substantial arsenal that is left and the Kazakh leadership, it, it wasn't for them an immediate decision to, to give up on, on nuclear inheritance. But I think very early on, after considering the security situation and also thinking about how Kazakhstan wanted to present itself to the outside world, um, the decision was taken that Kazakhstan should pursue a non-nuclear path. And I'll just mention briefly the main factors that went into that process. First of all, the, the weapons themselves that were left, they were strategic, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, no utility for the kind of threats that Kazakhstan faced at the time. Also, Kazakhstan didn't have access to command and control of those weapons. But at the same time, there, there was so much nuclear material left and all the infrastructure. So if Kazakhstan would have decided that, oh, actually, nuclear weapons program sounds appealing and we should go for it. They, they did have a foundation. But Kazakhstan was this new country 
coming out from the Soviet shadow, so to speak. And it was their first chance to present themselves to the world, first chance to have direct interaction uh, with the rest of the world. They wanted to have access to in the international community, to join the international institutions, to be able to receive foreign direct investment and in technology because there was all this oil, for example, that needed to be produced and they couldn't do it on their own. But also, I think fundamentally, it was about how Kazakhstan wanted to present itself to the outside world. They wanted to enter the community on, on good terms and not be the ones to undermine the existing norms of the global nuclear order. Thank you, Togjan. I think you've brought up something here that, that is so powerful that I would just like to dig into it a bit more. Like you said, there was a Kazakh anti-nuclear movement before the fall of the Soviet Union. And so much of this stems from the fact that the Soviets have this incredibly devastating legacy of testing in a community that was different from them, but that they didn't bother to tell anybody about what they were doing or what the potential impact, the fact that there was a major city 75 kilometers away, like you said. The only experience that I have to be able to relate to this is coming from the United States perspective, but I find them comparable. There's a terrible legacy here in the United States of testing in communities of color, nuclear weapons production sites in marginalized communities, and then doing very little, if anything at all, to clean up those legacies. And it strikes me that there is an important international aspect to that here, that this was done even perhaps on a larger scale in the Soviet Union by outsourcing it to an entirely different republic that wasn't Russian and that they were able to marginalize a whole community of people that were different than what as perceived as being the primary Soviet citizen, the Russian there. I'm, I'm curious if you could just talk to us a little bit more about that humanitarian impact side. You're absolutely correct by pointing out that the Soviet story is very similar to the story of other nuclear powers, the countries that tested nuclear weapons. When I started reading documents from the other countries, including the United States, it really struck me that even the language that was used by military planners, sometimes you couldn't even see the difference whether it was an American talking or a Soviet apparatchik. Exactly the same phrases, either uninhabited or community that will be easy to move because they wouldn't protest. And, and unfortunately, I think it makes it almost even more sinister that all the major nuclear powers that tested nuclear weapons, they did it in places that they considered remote enough from the places they considered important. So in the Soviet case, it was far from Moscow, for example, or in the U.S. case, you know, as you've mentioned, communities that suffered in the United States, in some shape or form, they're the communities that were more vulnerable, not to mention U.S. testing in the Marshall Islands, for example, that is uh, another pretty horrible story. And, and so I think in, in that sense, there are definitely parallels and in the international trend component to, to this story. But there are also positive stories that also have the international angle. And I just wanted to mention, for example, that when people of Kazakhstan started protesting against Soviet nuclear tests on their territory, they had support from the international partners. 
peace activists from the United States, downwinders, members of the native tribes came to Kazakhstan to support people of Kazakhstan. Similarly, Hibakusha, the victims of nuclear attacks in Japan, also came and activists from within Russia, those who were against uh, nuclear tests also came. So it was a very, uh, in a way, international effort and activists drew inspiration from each other. And I think it's just, a, it's, it's a wonderful story. And so, yeah, there are parallels both in terms of the darker sides, but there are also parallels and sense of community and uh, a sense of connection between all these different communities uh, on the happier side of the story as well. Absolutely. It's a really beautiful way to put that. There's the capability of humans from all places to be able to work to try to triumph over something so devastating as these painful nuclear legacies. I think that's really beautiful. I think that sort of where I want to bring this conversation next is with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's been this sort of lingering question posed by pundits and some experts out there that have said, wouldn't things have been different if Ukraine had kept its nuclear weapons, right? Uh, wouldn't that have provided them a deterrent, as it were, from this exact sort of thing that we're seeing from Russia right now? Can I ask you what you think of that idea? Do you think that Kazakhstan would be more secure today if it had held on to those Soviet nuclear weapons? I think this question can be answered on two levels. One is very technical and it's, you know, all this nuance about what Kazakhstan and Ukraine could have done with the weapons that were already on their territories and, and there were uh, limitations. But as I mentioned, you know, for both of them, they had enough expertise, material, and, and other components of the infrastructure that could have given them enough infrastructure to proceed if, if they made such decisions. But another level, I think, is almost more existential. It was about what kind of country you wanted to become. So in case of Kazakhstan, its fundamental security risks and threats could not have been answered with the nuclear weapons. And so what Kazakhstan did, it did feel insecure, but to, to deal with that, it sought security assurances, security guarantees from nuclear powers. And again, this question also now becomes so relevant because similar to Ukraine, Kazakhstan also signed Budapest Memorandum. It also has a bilateral document uh, with the United States that provides some security assurances. And so I think in practical terms, I'm not sure weapons could have given Kazakhstan extra security. On the contrary, Kazakhstan's policymakers and advisors to the government, when they discussed all these different scenarios, because truly they also had to weigh all the pros and cons, when they discussed this scenario of moving towards a, a nuclear path, it was very clear to them that they would immediately become an enemy in the eyes of the neighbors, a target for other nuclear powers, and, and so on. But I think above all, what's much more important is fundamentally the identity of a country, what Kazakhstan wanted to become and what it became. And I think it's also very similar to Ukraine. Ukraine would be a completely different country if back at the time it would try to go against the international norm. Kazakhstan would be a different country. It wouldn't build itself up as a country that it is today. And, and obviously Kazakhstan has many issues and many challenges, but fundamentally I think the identity of a country is that it wants to be a country 
that brings more good to the world rather than increasing dangers for everyone else. And so my, my answer to, to those who bring this up is first, look at all the technical and political nuances and strategic nuances. And second, think about what kind of countries they would have become. Right. I think that's such a good point. These decisions don't occur in isolation. Sure, they could have kept nuclear weapons on the odd chance that something might happen 20 years from then at the risk of becoming a pariah right at that moment, right? And forgoing all of the potential opportunity that you've discussed. And what does that say about national character? I think that that's a very interesting point to bring up. And one, unfortunately, that I don't think we've heard in this conversation at all. It's sort of made out as a binary choice. Do you want more security? Well, then you should have nuclear weapons. Or do you want to run the risk of having this happen to you? And it's a fundamentally, I wouldn't say flawed approach, but it's very simplistic. And and I think it is important to, to look at the countries that made this decision, countries that considered their security and made this decision for their security's sake. They They somehow decided that, no, our sovereignty and our statehood would be better off if we denounce nuclear path rather than uh, get on it. Let's turn back to some of your work here. I think that so much of nuclear activists here in the United States, activism itself, has turned to dealing with the human cost of nuclear weapons here at home. And this stems from the painful legacies, as we've already sort of mentioned, of of testing, but also just maintaining and producing these weapons too, let alone using them. I'm curious if you could tell us more about your work and your experiences. And and I know even some familial history. I, I think your father's family comes from the region where so much of Soviet testing was done. But your work, especially in uncovering this history in Kazakhstan and, and what those legacies look like there, you know, from an international perspective. Kazakhstan's nuclear story, it's complicated. And I think it influences Kazakhstan in, in its current state, again, both in, in good and bad ways, in bad ways or in tragic ways. I am witnessing firsthand the continued legacy of Soviet nuclear tests, because the last test was conducted in 1989 and under pressure from the civil society, they couldn't conduct any, any more tests. But Just to think that the last test was in 1989, the last atmospheric test was in in the 60s. But still, if you go to the area, if you visit the villages next to the former testing site, what you see, and I'm speaking obviously not as a doctor, I can only speak to what I saw. And what I saw is that there are hardly any old people. There are hardly any people who can claim that they are fully healthy. And what I think is most hard for me to accept is that there are children who are now the fourth generation of victims. And these children are still sometimes born with either missing fingers or having more fingers than they should. Children who have cancers, other serious health issues and This is something that makes me very, very angry. And that reminds me, you know, as someone who lives and works in Washington, that all those nuclear policy discussions, all these discussions about deterrence or nuclear policy, you know, and the fact that they're done in a very abstract technical way without any tie in 
to the sacrifice that communities around the world already made for the sake of the, those programs and are continuing to to pay the price. And I think that's that's something that we're missing from the conversation. But fortunately, you know, now we have this very positive trend of thanks to so again, I think reclaiming the agency of uh, countries and communities who before didn't have a say in the global nuclear discussions, that their voices are becoming stronger. And we pay more attention to the humanitarian consequences. We have this new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And so I think those darker sides of nuclear weapons programs, they are brought to the light more and more. And I think it will be harder and harder for governments to defend those programs, or at least to talk about them in, in a vacuum. My final question for you is the decision by states like Kazakhstan to give up their nuclear weapons. We're so critical, like you've talked about, in the peace building, peace and security in Europe and in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and and I mean, even South America and South Africa, you know, have incredible stories of giving up nuclear aspirations. And at the same time, we continue to sort of see this move into this multipolar environment today. And there seems to be great fear that not only that those moves might have been a mistake, like we've already talked about, but also that we might be at a tipping point where nations, again, might start to push for the bomb in order to ensure their security. Do you think that that is a legitimate fear? And, and what more can we be doing both as a community, but, but also perhaps the U.S. government, folks in Congress, our, our audience, to work back towards controlling and eliminating the threat posed by these weapons worldwide? For me, lesson number one from Kazakhstan is what we touched upon earlier on, that I think Kazakhstan's case breaks this by default assumption that countries seek more security and they see nuclear weapons as giving them more security. I think it's a narrative that obviously is very convenient for military industrial establishment and so on. But fundamentally, I think countries can view their security sources coming from somewhere else. In Kazakhstan's case, they thought they would be more secure if they can bring international business, if they can have foreign direct investment, because they logically thought that, you know, if we have international business, for example, U.S. companies, then we are better off and we will feel more protected. I don't think that there will be an explosion of many new nuclear states, uh, but I think fundamentally... We really have to be honest with ourselves and just ask a question, why, and I think we feel it very much right now, why do we all have to be hostages to nuclear weapons possessed by only nine countries? Why does the rest of the world have to worry that tomorrow there might be a nuclear exchange? And you know, even though I am very proud of Kazakhstan and I'm extremely supportive of Ukraine and their decision to give up nuclear weapons, and, I, and I've mentioned more than once international norms, and for Kazakhstan, definitely, they talked a lot about the norms and that we don't want to be a pariah state. But the, this arrangement, right, this norm that somehow it's okay for some countries to have nuclear weapons and it's completely not okay for others to have them, it's unjust. I don't think this dichotomy of nuclear haves and have-nots can continue forever. 
I think it will be harder and harder, for example, to push for nuclear non-proliferation while countries that do have nuclear weapons are not moving towards uh, nuclear disarmament. And I know for myself, you know, for my own work, I'm obviously <laughs> uh, very engaged in promoting non-proliferation values and capacity building work in other countries on reducing the risks or promoting nuclear non-proliferation. But sometimes it's hard, you know, how can we say with straight face that, oh, our country, even though it has the, the best conventional force in the entire world, we would still feel insecure if we don't have nuclear weapons. And, and so, you know, as someone who was brought up abroad but lives in the United States, I, I, I sometimes think that Americans forget how much the others view, still view this nation, and I think deservedly so, as a country, as a nation that can lead. And, and so on global nuclear issues, I do feel that it's really high time for the United States to earn back some of its if I can say so, high moral ground, right, or, or lead by example. There was this uh, gleam of hope back in 2009 with Obama and his Prague speech. But there is so much that the U.S. can do, uh, both in terms of low-hanging fruit, for example, for Congress to ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty for the country rejoining the JCPOA, but also more fundamentally, and the more fundamental task, I think, is to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in the U.S. national security paradigm. Because I think otherwise, and we're already observing that this tension and this, this pull from everybody else, from the rest of the world, from the majority of countries that do not have nuclear weapons but remain hostages to nuclear weapons of the few, I think, it will be harder and harder to promote ideas of reduction of nuclear risks or strengthening nuclear non-proliferation regime. Toshan, thank you so much. I, this has been a phenomenal conversation. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for all your hard work and uh, especially your work to bring this thing that I think the West still understands very little about and to help us understand more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. Stories of oppression, of ruling parties exploiting communities of color in the name of nuclear power across the globe are, unfortunately, not an uncommon story throughout nuclear history. Russia, Britain, France, the United States all developed and tested nuclear weapons around communities of color in places that were far removed from their home soil, with devastating impact to those communities. This is an important revelation, and one that I hope that we can all understand, because sometimes it's too easy to get caught up in the policy details and forget about the real human consequences of these policies. I hope you found this as informative and touching as I did. And I love what Togjan ended on. It's time for the United States to reclaim some of its high ground, some of its leadership on nuclear weapons issues. Obviously, that is easier said than done when all of the world's nuclear powers are reinvesting in their nuclear arsenals. But I think that we are all running a serious risk of letting non-proliferation get away from us over the coming decade if we cannot live up to this promise that Togjan hinted at. For a generation, nuclear powers have promised the world that if they stopped seeking nuclear weapons, we would work together to reduce the size of our nuclear arsenals. That promise, and therefore the entire structure of the non-proliferation regime, are now at risk. 
As the only nation to have used a nuclear weapon in anger, the United States has a unique position to lead on this issue that has been reaffirmed by every president, save one, since President Kennedy. We must lead again. Thanks for listening. If you love this interview and want to learn more, we invite you to order your own copy of Atomic Step from Stanford University Press. Check out our podcast description for the order link. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nukes of Hazard. That's at Nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arms Control Center. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.